0: So, let's begin with a story today. Now, we're getting into a bunch of missionary chapters, and we're going to be spending time with some missionaries who, early in their lives, you would have never imagined that the stories we're about to read would have ever happened. And so, there's a principle here that your past does not predict or determine your future. And Let me just tell you a small story. So, I grew up in the frozen wastelands of Minnesota, Actually, it's a very beautiful place. It's known as the land of 10,000 lakes. And probably there's more lakes than that. It's interesting, as a kid, I remember we took a trip to a state park. And we went to this lake. And actually, we visited lots of places like this growing up as a family. The lake was not of any particular significance, Uh, it was surrounded by trees. And there was a small outlet that created a little stream. And the stream was probably, I don't know, not very wide, maybe about as wide as I can stretch my hands, and enough that you could actually walk across the stream on, there was a pile of rocks. And what was interesting about this is that this nondescript lake and this nondescript stream actually is the headwaters of the third largest river basin in the entire world. It's the headwaters of the river that drains 41% of the land in the lower 48. And you probably guessed by now, it's the Mississippi River. It was Lake Itasca. Now, if somebody had told me, and I didn't know anything about geography, this little lake is the source of this mighty river that powers the economy through through the Midwest and is the way that people have traveled and communicated for years by using this river, I just would have never believed it that little lake and that little stream I could have never foreseen that it become this mighty powerful grand river that have shaped years of people's lives in the midwest similarly when we look at the lives of Ammon Aaron Omni Himner and others who were told earlier scriptures they were the very vilest of sinners we could not imagine that their early life Could have ever led to who they became. Now, what's interesting here is that the gospel creates these inflection points in our lives. The power of the love of Jesus Christ through the atonement can change us drastically where we can become something completely unexpected. And that's part of what we're going to be looking at today, among other things, that our past does not predict the future, and if anything, if we stay on the gospel path, that will predict our future that we will be welcomed in to God's kingdom. Wonderful intro. So, chapter
1: 17 opens with a glorious reunion between Alma and these four sons of Mosiah, Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni. It's been 14 years since uh, they last saw each other, and considering their rough past, uh, those beginnings that they had, you can picture that moment of uncertainty when Alma meets them thinking, you still good in the gospel? And them thinking the same thing, you still good in the gospel? And they find out that Alma's been on this mission among the Nephites, and he finds out that they've been on this 14-year mission among the Lamanites, and they're doing great, and seven whole cities of Lamanites have been converted, and it's just this beautifully glorious reunion. Now, if you look at verse 2, the first half of that verse describes this exceeding joy. The second half of verse two explains begins to explain what uh, Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and him and I went through. To do this part, I want to to use a little analogy on the board. Okay, so this is going to represent the we'll call it the the readiness. The readiness o meter. Okay, now it's totally made up. It's not scriptural. It's just an overlay to try to understand what's going on. The readiness o meter is going to be this arbitrary measuring device that will tell us how ready somebody is, either to to serve or to teach or to lead, or ready to receive and act on the gospel and make. Covenants. So, in this case, we watch the four sons of Mosiah when they were uh, in those early years, fourteen years previous to this, when they were out with Alma. They are not ready to teach the gospel. They have that converting uh, opportunity that uh, they and Alma went to went through together, and now they began at that point their preparations to become ready to be instruments in the hands of the Lord. So, let's let's watch their readiness change, okay? So, they, they come from a very low state of readiness, and then let's watch as they increase. Look at verse 2. We're going through the second half, halfway down where it starts, yea, and they had waxed strong in the knowledge of the truth, for they were men of sound understanding, and they had searched the scriptures diligently that they might know the word of God. You'll notice they didn't just have this converting experience and say, okay, let's go on a mission. That If you look carefully at the wording here, words like sound understanding, search the scriptures diligently, that they might know the word of God implies that they're putting huge effort into preparing their mind, their intellect. They're putting... Uh, proverbial water in the well, so to speak, so that the Holy Ghost can draw that water out as it's needed. They're not just going blindly saying, well, it feels right. I, I believe it. Let's go. Let's go teach. So, they prepare their mind, and I know that we've got to be careful not to pigeonhole and limit verse 2 to only the mind, but just so we can talk through it in a, in a overlay sense, we're going to pigeonhole it and stick it all in the mind for a minute. Look at verse 3. But this is not all. They had given themselves to much prayer and fasting, therefore they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. What is this getting at? What part of their soul are they preparing on this readiness to teach element in verse 3? Notice when they taught, they taught with power and authority of God. So, once again, you can't take the mind out of verse 2, but the dominant feature here is they're preparing the things of the heart – fasting and prayer, spirit of prophecy and revelation. Notice what would happen if they stopped their preparation in only verse 2 and they didn't do the fasting and the prayer and seeking prophecy and revelation. they would go down and probably want to engage in in deep discussions and try to convince people only with the power of the, the intellect and what they know that the gospel's true. And you'll notice if you wipe out two and you only go with verse three preparation and say, no, I, it's just going to be fasting and praying and going to the temple when I prepare for my service, but I'm not going to study the scriptures, I'm not going to stretch my mind, I'm not going to contemplate the eternities. You can imagine that their teaching would lack a lot. I love the fact that these four sons of Mosiah, in their preparations to be instruments in the hands of the Lord, they're giving their whole soul to him. They're stretching their mind, they're stretching their heart, and you can continue this down. Look at verse 4 and 5 as you read through these. They're doing They're doing preparations that will make it so that they have grit, they have perseverance, They're about to embark on a 14 year mission in a very, very difficult area for Nephites to serve, especially Nephite princes to serve among the Lamanites. Look at verse 6. They refused the kingdom, which their father was desirous to confer upon them. This was also the mind of the people. So there's a sacrifice element. So basically, what you're watching happen in the first part of chapter 17 is they just keep coming, coming, coming until these boys are ready to go, and you can send them anywhere, and they their minds are firm, their hearts are soft, and uh, they're they're able to take care of their physical needs in verse 7, so they've done all this preparation And now they come down into the mission field and they spread out among the Lamanites, commending each other and themselves to God to say, we trust, we've done everything we can, now let's go, now let's shift the focus from Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni to us today. When you get a call in the gospel, or when you get a call in your work, or when you get a call uh, from God having to do with your family, it's not just a willingness to go and do something, it's the fact that there are preparatory things we can do, and if we, like the the brothers here, figure out the right balance and the right priorities to prepare our minds and our hearts and our whole souls, then God can use us as an instrument in all kinds of settings, not just church settings or family settings, but in everything. Uh, associated with with earth life. We can be ready for whatever comes our way. Now, shifting away from them and us, back to our story, let's look at the Lamanites among whom they have endeavored to now teach and serve. Where would, where would you put King Lamoni on the readiness-o-meter when Ammon shows up? Uh, most people would put him somewhere about right here. He just got through killing a whole group of shepherds because they lost the flocks. Interesting that uh, in some of our mission cultures today, there's a false notion that the best missionaries are the boldest, and they come right in, and they're always inviting people to get baptized at the first earliest instance. Brothers and sisters, one of our finest missionaries in the Book of Mormon, Ammon, when he comes in with King Lamoni, you'll notice that the first time he comes in with Lamoni, it's almost as if he's sitting there getting a spiritual pulse on, on Lamoni. Is he ready? Where, where is he? He's monitoring his, his mind and his heart's receptiveness to hearing the gospel, and apparently Lamoni's not ready, because Ammon didn't say, I'm here to teach you the gospel, will you be baptized? He didn't do that. Notice what happens. Verse 20, as you work through this story, as he comes in, he is taken and bound, brought before King Lamoni. Uh, lots and lots of comparisons, by the way, through these, through these verses here between Ammon and Jesus Christ. There's a nice lens you can put on seeing Ammon as a type of Christ, being bound, brought before a king, judged, uh, being a good shepherd, willing to give his life for the flock, and uh, defending the flock. You get all of these beautiful uh, analogies coming through. So, here he is, standing in front of King Lamoni, and he senses Lamoni's not ready to hear the gospel yet. So, it's kind of like Lake Itasca idea. It's – there's a little bit there, but we got to wait is not ready to hear this, so what does he do? He just builds a relationship of trust with this king to the point where the king asks Ammon a couple of questions. Number one, do you want to live among my people? At which point Ammon's response is, yes, and maybe even until the day I die, depending on how you respond to what's going to happen here, but he doesn't go there yet. And then the king, being much pleased with Ammon, says, Uh, do you want to marry one of my daughters? Brothers and sisters, we don't know whether King Lamoni knew Ammon's pedigree, his his ancestry. We don't know because the book doesn't tell us. If King Lamoni knew that he had the son of King Mosiah, the king of the Nephites standing in front of him, then it's a very logical thing to have a political alliance marriage. It would give him more connection to power, and that's an important thing for people, especially in antiquity. But we don't know that. What if Lamoni didn't know that he had Mosiah's son standing in front of him, that he's just a Nephite, and we've killed Nephites before, we've thrown them in prison, we've cast them out of our land, we've done all kinds of things to Nephites that we've found before, but something's different about this particular Nephite. Ammon's preparation probably gives him a power and an authority that uh, even King Lamoni, in a very low, ready-to-learn state, is able to, to perceive. I love what President Boyd K. Packer used to, to teach. I love it and I don't like it because of its, uh, its reality. He said, speaking to seminary and institute teachers, he said, you teach – you are much more than what you say or do. It's, it's who you are that is, that is the number one uh, tool that you have as a teacher. I think you're seeing that here with Ammon. Even if King Lamoni knew that it was Mosiah's boy, there's still something powerful about uh, the way Ammon is able to stand there with a quiet confidence and a quiet dignity, That is just palpable. It's moving. And so, then Ammon's response to this question, do you want to marry one of my daughters, is very simple. No, I I didn't come to find a bride. Uh, I want to be your servant. I want to serve you. Notice, Lamoni is not ready to be invited to get baptized or to hear the gospel yet. So, what does Ammon do? He says, I want to serve you. Well, the king says, all right, I'm actually in need of some more servants. I just killed a batch of shepherds, so yeah, we've got some openings. So, he, he assigns him to go and feed the flocks. Look at verse 26. After he had been in the service of the king three days, pause, time out, after he had been in the service of the king three days, Notice, sometimes scripture study can be enhanced if you just slow down every once in a while and look at what it doesn't tell you. Not just what it does tell you, but what it doesn't tell you. If he's been in the service of the king three days as a servant, what do you think it might have been like for Ammon at the end, at the close of day two as a servant? as he's walking back from the fields or from taking care of the animals as a servant does, menial labor, as he's walking back to get some food and maybe get some rest with the other servants, what might the potential voices of discouragement been inside of his head? Because Satan doesn't give anybody a free pass, so what might he tried, have tried to uh, convince Ammon of after two long hard days of working. Can you can you picture this? Maybe phrases like you did all of that preparation for this or you could have had the Nephite throne. You could have been the king. And now you've got this. Seriously? Uh, Ammon, what a waste of a life. All of these all of these negative self-loathing, self-deprecating thoughts that could have dragged him down into misery. But there's no sign of that. Part of Ammon's preparation is also this, this, I know who I am. I'm comfortable in my own skin, and I trust God. I trust that he is going to open opportunities for Lamoni's heart to be softened and prepared, I don't know how that's going to happen, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I trust. I love Ammon's example here of moving forward through the menial tasks, through the, the aspects of life that don't get celebrated. How many people are standing over a young mother's shoulder watching all of the things that she does in a given day and congratulating her? It doesn't usually happen. How many people congratulate you at work for all of the little things that you do that go unnoticed. The fact is that if we're willing to do the hard work all along the way, God does open up doors of of incredible opportunity. He opens up hearts. Now watch. Picking back up in verse 26, he was in the service of the king three days as he was with the Lamanitish servants, by the way, that's the first time that you get the word Lamanitish. These aren't Lamanites. They're part Lamanite, part something else. It's almost like they're on the fringe of even the Lamanite society here. They're, they're the, the lowest of the low, as far as these servants and Ammon's with them. He's with these Lamanitish servants going forth, and when they went forth, then the Lamanites come forth and scatter their flocks, scare them away, and notice verse 28, the response, now the servants of the king began to murmur, saying, now the king will slay us as he has our brethren, because their flocks were scattered. So they sit down and they start lamenting, saying, see, I told you, we're we're dead. He's going to kill us like he did the other group. And here stands Ammon looking at them saying, really? Why are you going to sit down and and roll over and die uh, instead of going and getting the flocks? like it won't do any good because if we gather them up, then the Lamanites are just going to scatter them again. We're dead. Notice, back in chapter 17 verse 15, Ammon tells us here, thus they were a very indolent people, many of whom did worship idols. Stop and think about it. If you worship an idol, uh, what do you have to do to become more like that thing or that, that element that you're trying to worship? You just have to become more idle, and that's exactly what's happening here, is they just they stop acting. They give up their agency, and they say, we're a victim of the circumstance. That's where the devil wants us, to be idle, not working through life, including the especially the hard, mundane elements of life. Be idle. Stop doing stuff. So, Ammon says, no, go gather them be of good cheer, so they do, they go gather them, and then he says, I'll defend them. There's something very Christ-like about Ammon placing himself betwixt the Lamanites and the flock, which is exactly where Jesus places himself, between us and justice. So then he gets out his sling and he starts throwing rocks, and you can picture this moment When uh, he kills the first guy, then the second guy, third guy, fourth guy, fifth guy, by the time he kills six guys with the sling, and they've been slinging their rocks, they can't hit him, they finally figure out, you know what, we're going to have to try to do this a different way. Uh, They began to be astonished after six guys have fallen to the ground. So then they say, "Let's, let's get Ammon to join our club, right? That's a poor joke. Uh, so, they rush him with their their weapons, and he cuts off arms of all those who came to him, disar- disarmed all of those guys, and kills their leader with the sword. By the way, can you picture being the Lamanitish servants watching this happen? Can you picture what's happening to their readiness-o-meter? Wow this miracle that's unfolding in front of them, they're like, okay, well, th- this is amazing. This guy cannot be killed. He's superhuman. So, these, these uh, robbers run off, and then where does Ammon go? He doesn't go back to the group and gloat in his success. He doesn't draw any attention to it. He doesn't go back to King Lamoni and say, hey, look what I did for you. He keeps serving. He sought not his own. He's waiting for God to do the work. By him doing his best effort, then he lets the effort do the talking. He doesn't do the talking. So, he goes and he starts feeding the horses because that was the next thing that was required of the servants, right? Chapter 18 is filled with all of these uh, incredible interchanges early on between Ammon and King Lamoni, where Lamoni has no idea how to even address him. He can't figure out what's happened uh, and who he has standing in front of him. He's he's convinced at, at one point that he has the great spirit himself standing there. And then Ammon, reading those thoughts, tells him, no, here in chapter 18, verse 17, I say unto you, what is it that thy marvelings are so great? Behold, I am a man, and am thy servant." So, here's this guy who is so powerful who places himself in underneath King Lemo- I- I'm your servant. There's something beautiful about that for leaders in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to say, I am not bigger or better than you. I am your servant. How can I serve you? How can I help you? That opens hearts quicker than anything, that Christ-like humility, and love, and service attribute. Now, watch what happens with this process. So, the more Ammon talks, the more King Lamoni's readiness raises. So, if somebody – in this arbitrary measurement, if somebody's over in here, they're not really ready to hear the gospel. If someone's in this range, Depending on how it's presented, they'll accept it. And somebody over here, where have you been, sisters or elders? Come on in, I had a dream about you, I'm ready to join your church, how do I get baptized? That kind of an approach would be over here. Pretty rare in, in today's world especially. But watch what, what happens with King Lamoni. He gets to the point where now Ammon is recognizing he's, he's getting more and more ready his mind and his heart are being prepared more and more by the Lord to receive and respond appropriately to the gospel. So, notice how he begins the actual teaching portion of this interchange. Look at verse 23. And the king answered him and said, yea, I will believe all thy words. hundred percent. He's got him in a place where he's saying, I don't care what you say, I'm going to believe you at this point. Look at verse 24. Ammon began to speak unto him with boldness and said unto him, believest thou that there is a God? And his response, I do not know what that meaneth. I don't don't know that word. And then so Ammon steps back, believest thou that there is a great spirit? And he said, yea. And Ammon said, this is God. Do you notice the pattern of what Ammon's doing here? He doesn't say, wait, you you actually believe in the great spirit instead of God. That that is the most ridiculous thing ever. It's not a very effective technique for missionaries to go out and tear down what people believe in order to then teach them the truth. Ammon's demonstrating a beautiful pattern here. Of you find people wherever they are, whatever level they're on, you find them and then you start there. And take them to the next levels up in their spiritual understanding, and their spiritual uh, knowledge. Do you believe in the Great Spirit? Yes. Okay, that's God. So, you're not backing him into a corner making him feel dumb because he believes in the, the Great Spirit, but you're saying, let's take what you believe, this is the President Gordon B. Hinckley principle of bring all the good that you have and see if we can add to it. We're confident that we can. The way that uh, President Hinckley always spoke about our missionary efforts, and that's exactly what's happening here. So, once we get his great spirit combined with knowledge of that's God in place, now watch the progression of the elements of the gospel that Ammon's going to teach to him. So, you'll notice in verse 36, when Ammon had said these words, he began at the creation of the world, he begins at the beginning, there's God, now we go to the creation, the creation of Adam, all things concerning the fall of man. Then he opens up the Holy Scriptures and shows everything that had happened down to the time that Father Lehi left Jerusalem. That doesn't end there. Verse 37, we open up the Scriptures that Nephi brought and talk about the journeys through the wilderness and coming to the Promised Land and then verse 39 we finish with the plan of redemption so we have the creation the fall the atonement laid out on a foundation of a belief in god using the scriptures as the main source here to to teach these doctrines and lamoni passes out in the spirit he is overcome in the spirit and we open up chapter 19 which is a chapter with three, uh, three really, really important women being mentioned in the Book of Mormon. So, first, uh, after two days, King Lamoni's wife calls in Ammon to say, should, should I bury him? Ammon says uh, to her, don't bury him because he is going to rise tomorrow. Notice verse uh, 9, Ammon said unto her, believest thou this? And she said unto him, I have had no witness save thy word and the word of our servants. Nevertheless, I believe that it shall be according as thou hast said." At which point Ammon has this reflective moment where he says, blessed art thou because of thy exceeding faith. I say unto thee, woman, there has not been such great faith among all the people of the Nephites. Isn't that interesting? These missionaries have come down among the the Lamanites to teach them the gospel and to increase faith. And now he meets this woman and he says, I, I haven't found that much faith even among all the people of the Nephites. So she sat there by his bed that whole day and that night and he rose according to the words of Ammon in verse 12, and he stretched forth his hand unto the woman, his wife, and he said, Blessed be the name of God, and blessed art thou. There are two people in scriptures that you're commanded to love with all your heart. Lord thy God and your spouse." I love the fact that in verse 12 you get both of those mentioned right as Lamoni is waking up from this incredible experience that he's had in the Spirit for three days, and the two people that he blesses first and foremost,
0: God and his wife. I think there's something powerful there. So, after King Lamoni has woken up from this uh, uh, amazing conversion experience. He preaches to his wife, she falls down in joy, Lamoni falls down in joy, Ammon falls down in joy, and everybody in the household basically has been overcome with the Spirit, except for one woman, Abish. And it says, verse 16, it came to pass that they did call on the name of the Lord in their might, even until they had all fallen to the earth, save it were one of the Lamanitish women whose name was Abish, she having been converted unto the Lord for many years on account of a remarkable vision of her father. So, we get this one of the few named women in the Book of Mormon here in Alma chapter 19. I find this to be one of the most fascinating episodes in the Book of Mormon. And the reason is, I think Abish is far more powerful and and valuable for us as a witness about God than we perhaps may have realized. And let me just share just a couple of potential possible insights here. So, let's take her name. Uh, It can be broken down into two different Hebrew words. The word Ab means father. And you find the word Ab in names like Abraham or Abraham, and Abraham means father of multitudes. And it's interesting because Abraham's name actually is a signal around the covenants that God has made with him, that the Abrahamic covenant is about God multiplying Abraham's posterity. So, that's what Abraham or Abraham means. And the word ish means man. So, in Hebrew, if you put those two words together, ab ish, Her name would simply mean, Father is a man. Now, this is a proposal. I mean, we don't know with 100% certainty that this is all totally correct, but I'm just offering a proposal here that we are told the Book of Mormon that the people who wrote knew Hebrew and Egyptian, and these two words are Hebrew names, and if you put them together, you actually get the sentence, Father is a man. I actually think what's going on here is that her name signals a truth that is actually packed in to the narrative. And what's interesting here, if we could translate this back into Hebrew, the word father seems to show up twice. You have it in her name, Ab, like Abish or Abish, and at the end of the verse, it talks about this remarkable vision of her father. And over the years when I read that, I thought, oh, that's interesting. She had a very righteous father. Who'd had a vision of God and her father taught her that truth and she was converted and therefore she had silently been a believer all along and so when this whole experience happened, she was already converted and didn't fall down. But as I learned about the potential Hebrew meaning of her name, I wondered actually if there's something far more significant. In fact, it may be that her name wasn't simply indicating that her earthly father Had a vision. I wonder if her name literally is a testimony of something that she had learned in her own vision. I wonder if Abish actually had a vision of God the Father, and that she learned in that vision that God the Father, God the Father is a man. And that actually would be stunning and revelatory. And if this proposal is correct, it would mean that Abish is the only named woman in scripture, aside from Eve, that actually has seen God the Father, which makes her story all the more remarkable because she's evidence that all of us have access to God in his full glory. And I just love the possibility that her name may actually witness about one of the most important things about God the Father that he is a man, in fact, most importantly, he is the man of holiness. And that's the experience that Lamoni and his whole household are experiencing, the overwashing holiness of God's love that has caused them to sink down into joy. It's
1: fun to have options available. So, since the text isn't clear, like Taylor's talking, you have a couple of ways that you can look at this, this wording with Abish. You'll notice now we've talked about Abish, and we've talked about Lamoni's wife, there's that third woman mentioned in Alma chapter 19, and she comes, we have to go back in time, back to verse 13. Right after he woke up, he says to his wife, for as sure as thou livest, behold, I have seen my Redeemer, and he shall come forth and be born of a woman, and he shall redeem all mankind who believe on his name. So. Lamoni recognizes that God, who's going to come down to earth to save us, this this Redeemer, is going to be born of a woman. So, here we get mention of Mary and her role in this process. Now, Taylor mentioned already the fact that the the whole group, uh, Ammon, Lamoni, and his wife, have fallen to the ground, and so Abish is the one who runs door to door gathering people to come and see what's happened and then you get the, the one guy who comes and he sees Ammon passed out on the floor, draws his sword because he's related to somebody that Ammon, you know, dealt with back in chapter 17. He comes forward to kill Ammon and he falls dead. Now the people are really uh, confused about what's going on and some aren't at all confused, they recognize it, and you'll notice that by the time we're done, everybody who's left readiness o meter looks like that they're, they're all ready to go as far as the gospels concerned and so Lamoni wakes up after Abish wakes up the queen then Lamoni and Ammon and he starts to teach and it's just this beautiful
0: beautiful experience so what happens as a consequence of all these people who have now been prepared through these these experiences many of them if we look in verse 35, And it came to pass that there were many that did believe in their words, and as many as did believe were baptized. And they became a righteous people, and they did establish a church among them. I just want to point out that in addition to the common understanding we all have about the word righteous, there's actually a covenantal meaning for the word righteous. In fact, actually, uh, in scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, the word righteous often is a code word, I don't mean to speak in code, but it often means to be in covenant relationship with God. So, if you've made covenants with God, you are righteous, and if you keep your covenants, you are righteous. And if you look at what's going on here, what do these people do? They get baptized. They've made this covenant with Jesus Christ, and so that is being in the paths of righteousness. And notice that what do they do? help them stay in the paths of righteousness or to stay on a covenant-keeping life path, they did establish a church among them. And if you think about our church organization today, the whole point of the church organization is not potluck dinners or road shows or all these things that we do. That is not the point, although those things might help. The main point of church is for us to gather together to reinforce the covenants that we have made. If you think about every week at church, It's about partaking the sacrament. It's renewal of the baptismal covenant. So, I want you to think that if you wonder like, am I a righteous person? Well, are you in covenant with God? Then yes, you're righteous. No, we all make mistakes. I didn't say whether any of us were like without sin. That actually is not necessarily what's being mentioned here by the word righteous. It's about being in covenant with God. So, if you are being purposeful and meaningful in your covenant-making with God, that puts you in the camp of righteousness, and that is what's going on here in Alma 35, that the people that Ammon has gone to teach have become righteous, that is, they become covenant-making, covenant-keeping people, and they've established the Church to help them stay in the paths of covenants or in the paths of righteousness. Okay, now let's shift gears
1: away from uh, what's going on with Ammon and Lamoni over towards Aaron and his brethren that went with him. In chapter 20, as you read through that one, you're going to find that uh, he, Ammon gets this, this revelation from the Spirit to say, your brother is over in Madoni and he needs to be released from prison. So, he tells Lamoni about this, and Lamoni says, well, that king's my friend, let's go, I'll go with you. So, they, they head that direction. On their way, en route, they run into King Lamoni's father, who happens to be the king over all the Lamanite lands. And uh, here's Lamoni, this new convert, who is so excited to share with dad his conversion story and the, the glorious change that has taken place in his mind and his heart and his whole soul and and among his people, and he's shocked when his dad isn't just uh, neutral but really negative about that experience. Notice the response in chapter 20 verse 13, now when Lamoni had rehearsed unto him all these things, behold, to his astonishment, his father was angry with him, and said, Lamoni, thou art going to deliver these Nephites, who are the sons of a liar. Behold, he robbed our fathers, and now his children are also come amongst us that they may, by their cunning and their lying, deceive us, that they again may rob us of our property. Do you remember the tradition of the Lamanites back in Mosiah 10? This idea that the Nephites are so bad, they've done all these things, and now here's King Lamoni's father saying, they've come among us to rob us of our property. By the way, we're standing in the land of Nephi right here. This is property so to speak. This is this is land that was settled by the Nephites originally, that now the Lamanites have taken, and he tells Lamoni, you need to kill Ammon, at which point Lamoni's is obviously saying, no, I'm not going to do that, and then he says, well then, you're no son of mine, and you're worthy of death, I'm going to kill you, at which point Ammon inserts himself between Lamoni and Lamoni's father, and Lamoni's father says, okay, well then, I'm going to kill you, and he advances. Now, can you picture Lamoni in the background? I can picture him back there saying, um, Dad, st- stay right where you are. If you, Do you like your arms? Do you want to keep your arms? Just stay right where you are. <laughs> I, but this old king comes forward with his sword and starts smiting on Ammon who withstood his blows and then uses his own sword to uh, disable the, this Lamanite king, and now he has him he has him right where he he wants him, at the edge of the sword. Where would you put King Lamoni's father on the readiness-o-meter at this point, ready to hear the gospel? For some of you would say, well, the readiness-o-meter is broken, it's just kind of like, he's, he's not even registering, <laughs> he is not ready to hear the gospel. So now Ammon does something very interesting. Uh, when King Lamoni's father makes an offering to him, look at verse 23. Now the king fearing he should lose his life said, if thou wilt spare me, I will grant unto thee whatsoever thou wilt ask, even to half of the kingdom. Are you noticing what happened here? Let's erase the readiness o It served its purpose. And let's do a math equation. He put two things equal to one another. He said, if you will spare my life, I will give you anything you ask up to one half of my kingdom. Now, he didn't put it into words, but what he basically said is, my life is worth half of my kingdom. That, that's basically what just happened in verse 23 right here. Um, by the way, is that a valid offer? I mean, stop and think about it for a minute. Which half of your kingdom is going to want to follow the Nephite, and how hard is it to poison him or to kill him when he's asleep or something – meaning this is just an attempt to entice somebody who I've been taught as the king of the Lamanites all my life that these Nephites are just, they're just power hungry and they don't care about anything but robbing and stealing from the Lamanites, so let's offer him this, he'll take it, and then we can kill him off, right? Oh, how it must have moved the readiness-o-meter for this old king to see the look on Ammon's dignified yet powerful face say, king, I am not interested in any portion of your kingdom or your throne. I didn't come down here to take kingdoms. In fact, I gave up the Nephite kingdom to come down here to be a servant among your people. I don't want your kingdom. All I want is for my brothers to get out of prison and for your son, Lamoni, to have a little bit of religious freedom in the land of Ishmael, in his own city." At which point the king says, that's all you want? Yeah, that's it. Okay done. Now he goes home. King Lamoni's father goes home and the Holy Ghost now gets to teach him over and over and over again what happened out there on that day. Uh, Once again, the quote from Elder Maxwell, the, the concept from Elder Maxwell, some of history's greatest sermons are preached from the pulpit of memory to an audience of one. I think that's happening with King Lamoni's father. So, after getting Aaron out of prison, Ammon goes back home with Lamoni to Ishmael, and Aaron is directed by the Spirit of the Lord to go and visit this king. So, we, we skip over, you're going to be reading on your own uh, chapter 21 with Aaron's initial struggles. Let's pick up his story with the king in chapter 22. Notice, As after he got out of prison from Ammon, you can imagine the little district meeting or zone conference that would have happened right there of, wow, how did you get all this success? And Ammon giving him the formula. Now watch how perfectly he applies the training. So he goes into the king, verse 2 of chapter 22. He bowed himself before the king. We're the brethren of Ammon. And look at verse 3 Now, O king, if thou wilt spare our lives, we will be thy servants. They learned their lesson really well, didn't they? But the king said unto them, Arise, for I will grant unto you your lives, and I will not suffer that you shall be my servants, but I will insist that you shall administer unto me. King Lamoni's father is not over here in his readiness-o-meter. Over these days or weeks, however long it's been, the Spirit has been working with him where he says, I don't want any more servants. I've got so many servants, I don't know what to do with them, but I don't have anyone who can teach me the gospel. I've been troubled in my mind. I, I need to learn teach me so his heart is already open god opened it through the these experiences that he's had and so you'll notice that Aaron is able to jump right in and teach he teaches about god in verse 7 then he teaches the combination of god and the great spirit same thing and then in verse 10 the creation the fall the atonement you get the scriptures being opened up by him it's the same pattern the redemption Now the conclusion. Look at verse 14. Since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself. We don't deserve anything for ourselves. But the sufferings and death of Christ atone for their sins through faith and repentance and so forth, and that he breaketh the bands of death. Okay? And then Aaron expanded all things unto the king. Now go to verse 15. It came to pass that after Aaron had expanded these things unto the king, or unto him, the king said... Now watch, you're going to get another math equation, a math equality that's going to be set up by King Lamoni's father. He says, what shall I do that I may have this eternal life of which thou hast spoken? Before this this Lake Itasca principle, this I mean, we used it referring to the the four sons of Mosiah, but it applies to Lamoni and his father as well. What started as this little thing, I'm only concerned about this, it's now grown. Now I'm focused on this. I want eternal life. Notice what he equates, uh, what he's willing to give up in order to attain eternal life. What shall I do that I may be born of God, having this wicked spirit rooted out of my breast, and receive his spirit, that I may be filled with joy, that I may not be cast off at the last day. Behold, said he, I will give up all that I possess. Yea, I will forsake my kingdom, that I may receive this great joy." I love the fact that this king has now gotten to the point where he says, I don't even care about my kingdom at this point. I'm willing to give it all up in exchange for eternal life that Aaron has taught me about and that the Spirit has has borne witness to my soul. Now, Aaron, recognizing the complete soft heart and the readiness of the king, he doesn't say, oh good, we've arrived because there's one step more, and Aaron invites that step, and then you get the final step in verse 18 when the king now, instead of turning to Aaron, saying, what do I need to do, Aaron gets him to turn to God. This is one of the sweetest prayers in all of scripture, coming from a guy who didn't get raised by parents who taught him how to pray and how to address God. Look at the look at the raw, authentic power that just comes from Lamoni's father as he addresses this this being that he so desperately wants to come to know. Verse 18, O God, Aaron hath told me that there is a God, and if there is a God, and if thou art God, wilt thou make thyself known unto me, and I will give away all my sins to know thee, that I may be raised from the dead and be saved at the last day. And now when the king had said these words, he was struck as if he were dead. So we get one more equation to finish it off in verse 18, which some of you would say, well, this is the same because of John uh, in the New Testament saying in the intercessory prayer, Jesus says, and this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. But King Lamoni's father is looking for this personal connection with God. And notice what he was willing to give up? Something way more difficult than a kingdom. Something way more painful to extract than possessions. He's willing to give up all of his sins. Brothers and sisters, as you, as you contemplate these chapters and watching God work with people on their own level of readiness, and their willingness to use agency to increasingly connect with God, you can use this as a pattern, as an overlay in how we serve each other, how we approach the throne of grace, and how we prepare ourselves to not just receive of God's goodness but then become instruments in his hands to spread God's goodness. That's what covenant, uh, covenant relationships are all about. It's not a selfish thing. It's a share the wealth, spread the goodness, and we do that by loving, by serving, and by trusting in God and building these relationships with people that that are uh, meaningful to point them to then building relationships with God. So, in closing, I hope that we can all come to the point where we, like the father of King Lamoni, can actually, with sincerity, say to God, I will give up all of my sins to know thee. That's the target. That's our goal. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.